Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Donald Trump's fiscal 2019 budget proposal calls for $1.7 trillion in cuts to mandatory spending and receipts and a 2% yearly reduction in non-defense discretionary budget after 2019. But it also includes spending for infrastructure. Here to tell us more about the plan is Nathan Dean, our senior analyst, financial services policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Nathan on Twitter at Nathan Dean DC. All right, Nathan Dean DC, tell us about this infrastructure proposal and what we should take away from it. So the first thing you can take away from it is that the odds of this actually going into law are extremely low. Uh, it's $200 billion in federal spending. That $200 billion would then entice the $1.3 trillion in spending. Uh, that $1.3 trillion would come from local and state municipalities. It would also come from the private sector. Uh, it's a 55-page plan. You know, This is a little bit more detailed than what we saw from the tax reform plan that came up from the White House, uh, which was about eight or nine pages. Now it has to go to Congress to actually come up with a piece of legislation. And like I just said, during an election, year. This is probably not the best time for this plan to come out. Uh, the odds of it actually passing are quite low. But that said, do we learn anything from this as far as what President Trump's approach will be to infrastructure spending, uh, perhaps not uh, something that will get implemented or even passed uh, anytime this year, but even even beyond? Well, you know, it, it's really a, a fundamental disagreement between the Republicans and the Democrats of who's going to pay for the infrastructure. So, you know, this plan is fairly it, it's a new idea. It's, you know, let's actually dial back the federal spending and let's get public private partnerships and state and local municipalities put that up. Now, that, that's the problem, because these P3s, they only account for about three percent of total infrastructure spend. And in, in its entirety, P3s have only done about 30 billion dollars worth of spend, uh, you know, this is something where they want $1.3 trillion to come out. The Democrats on the other side are saying this is extremely too low. And so I think the problem for this plan is that even if you were to get the 60 votes to go you know, and pass this thing, because you can't use reconciliation, it's got to be a bipartisan measure. Even if you were to get that 60, uh, 60 votes, then you need the state and local municipalities to pay for it or come up with their own user fees. So if you're sitting in New York, for example, and you're wondering whether or not this tunnel between New York and New Jersey are going to come, well, then it's going to be up to New York and New Jersey to decide, well, are we going to charge a $15 toll every time you go through that tunnel, et cetera? Okay. Uh, another thing that we are learning is that President Trump is going to call for $1.7 trillion in cuts to mandatory spending and receipts. Um, this uh, he will be announcing later today as part of his fiscal year 2019 budget proposal. How realistic is that, a $1.7 trillion in cuts, and where are they likely to come? So the, the president, President Trump's budget essentially is just something that we what we tell our our clients is don't pay attention to the big numbers, pay attention to the specifics. The plan that they put out last week and they agreed to essentially set the budget. This thing's pretty much irrelevant. However, you know there are specific things in there for specific in, uh, industries. So if you're in the healthcare sector, for example, look at what they say specifically to the FDA, for example, and then what we'll see is is that there there's a couple more must pass pieces of legislation 
aviation coming up between now and the end of the year. Maybe, you know, the Federal Aviation Administration has to be reauthorized in March. That's the time where specific sectors could be inserted. So, uh, you know, avoid the high level noise, go specifically to the industries that you care about, and then look for those opportunities for the rest of the year. That's where some of that stuff may be inserted. Nathan, what are private activity bonds and how do they play into this conversation? So this is something that the Trump administration has pushed forth. It's a new way of financing. Uh, it's something that hasn't been really tested on this grand of a scale. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the other hardships that's really coming up with this plan is that, you know, they're coming up with a lot of new ideas and they're trying to say this is where we want to take infrastructure. And I think everybody agrees that, you know, we need about five, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars of new infrastructure spending. The problem is how do you go forth and pay for it? These Republicans are trying, you know, private activity bonds. They're trying local and state municipalities to try and get to pay for it. The Democrats just want the federal government to do it. So, uh, again, it's it's not like they're not coming up with good idea or new ideas. It's just I, I, the 2018 is not the year to do it. What about the uh, highway, the federal highway tax, you know, for the highway trust fund? Isn't that right about 18 cents a gallon right now? It hasn't really changed since 1993. No, and that's correct. And, you know, this is something that the, you know, the gas tax is something that the U.S. Chamber has actually pushed and said, let's, let's increase this. And, you know, if the U.S. Chamber is pushing that, let's go forth and do, you know, that, that's something that's actually then going to give some political cover to the Republicans pushing this. You know, one thing that we, we you know, Bloomberg Intelligence, we've looked at in terms of the gas tax is that it really doesn't change behavior uh, in auto drivers. So if you're investing in auto companies, for example, a, a 25 or 30 cent gas tax isn't really going to change consumer behavior. It's the optics of putting in a tax uh, when, you know, we've just been lauding all these tax cuts and tax reform and so forth in the era of an election or an election year. The putting an additional gas tax on consumers is probably not good politics. So, you know, we don't think the gas tax is actually something to be too concerned about. Uh, you know, even if it were to go through, I don't think we would see much impact on, uh, uh, you know, position on the auto companies. How much unity is there right now among Republicans as they try to push this through? And as we look at the details of the proposal uh, where there might be actually some real intel. So I don't think there's a lot of unity right now. I mean, you'll hear it publicly, you know, everybody wants to say, yep, we need to do infrastructure spending. But, you know, they've just passed tax reform. They've just passed a budget deal. You know, if you're on the Republican side and you're a deficit hawk, uh, you know, there's not a lot of good standing for you right now. But uh, you have to go into an election year and you have to say that within 10 years, uh, our deficit is going to be, you know, well above the $20 trillion that it is right now. And so, uh, you know, there is some unity on the public side, but when they privately talk, I don't, I don't think there is there. Uh, I think a lot of the Republicans, especially in the Senate and those who are running for reelection right now, will just say, you know what, this is a great plan. Thank you, White House. We're going to take it. We're going to review it. Uh, we're going to spend the next two to three months talking about it. And then come summer, let's just move off and actually deal with the elections. So is there anything that we should take away from this that would actually be put into uh, into place? I mean, maybe some kind of proposal that would actually gain some kind of uh, agreement. Well, you know, I, again, I would just go back to the specifics. And, you know, this 55-page plan came out and, you know, there's a lot of money in here for rural infrastructure projects. Uh, so that's something that I think that, you know, both sides of the aisle would agree on. Uh, you know, infrastructure growth is going to be positive for 2018. That's what we estimate anyway. Uh, you know, I don't think that this bill or this plan is going to enhance that all that much. Uh, you know, again, you need 60 votes in the Senate. I don't think they're going to get it. Uh, 
and so I, I think what I would just say is, is that, you know, is, is this is just the first step of the negotiation and that if the administration decides that they want to try and do infrastructure again in 2019, this is something that they can start working with and maybe dial it down so that it's not $1.5 trillion. But, you know, again, I, I, I would just say stay tuned. Nathan Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Nathan Dean, Senior Analyst uh, for Financial Services Policy for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. I want to bring in Jason Schenker. He is the president and the founder of Prestige Economics. He is also a Bloomberg prophet. Bloomberg prophets are professionals offering actionable insights on markets and the economy, as well as monetary policy. He's based in Austin, Texas. Jason, the topic is commodities. What is the best commodity to invest in now? Well, there are a number of different commodities that I think offer opportunities to leverage what's going on in the global economy. We don't normally, we don't offer explicit investment advice, but, you know, I'd say that if we're looking at what's going on in the global economy, I think that um, China uh, offers big insights into what will happen with aluminum, with oil. Just this morning, OPEC's monthly oil report was out. Uh, China's expected to see even greater oil demand growth than last year. The global economy, those IMF numbers really convey that industrial metals and oil prices are likely to see some upward pressure. And that's despite the fact that there's potential for capacity to come online, uh, especially for, say, oil with with shale. But a lot of this will hinge on what happens with the outlook for the global economy, the outlook for the dollar. And I think U.S. inflation will remain the biggest question as to uh, how much upside there really is for commodity prices. You know, Jason, I want to I want to home in on oil because last week we had the worst week for crude, uh, I believe, since 2016 in two years. And uh, today we are seeing a little bit of a bounce. But, you know, you were talking about the good numbers that we're getting out of China. It's surprising it's not more if people really believed uh, that there was significant further upside for oil. So, you know, how far could we go right now? Uh, we're uh, underneath $60 a barrel. Where do you see uh, crude ending the year? Well, for the year's average price, you know, we see WTI between 60 and 65. But, you know, we're going to have a really hot driving season this year. You know, the, the job market's the hottest it's been since 2000, 2001. Uh, we've seen uh, now with the tax cuts, people are going to have more disposable income. You're going to see this be a very big rockin' driving season. And that means that gasoline demand in the U.S. is going to be very strong, and that drives global oil prices. So once we get to the, the latter part here of Q1 and we go into Q2 and we see the ramp up for the U.S. driving season, there's going to be a lot of demand for refineries for crude oil, and that could send prices higher. We could see spikes to 70. We could see spikes above that. I wouldn't expect those to be sustained prices because the shale drillers are going to see those spikes as opportunities to lock in uh, production at a certain price level. But I think you're going to see most of the price action for the year be in the 60 to 65 range for WTI and a, a few dollars higher for Brent. So uh, but one other question, though, with oil, how much is uh, sort of the direction of prices there dependent on the dollar? Because we are seeing 
a bit of a rebound today in prices, although not recouping even the losses on Friday. Uh, and of course, the dollar is weakening a little bit. And this has sort of been a move in tandem. So how much do you sort of judge that? Well, that's more of a long-term thing. You know, we've looked at these dollar crude price dynamics. That's more of a long-term, uh, you know, over a multi-year period or over a single-year period, you can see that there's an inverse correlation. What's more important is the expectation of how stable is growth. And that's why I say U.S. inflation is going to be really important right now. That CPI report on Wednesday is going to be critical for what happens to the dollar, what happens to equities, what happens to oil, what happens to metals, uh, because the, the sell-offs we've seen not just in oil, but in equities, uh, the, the rebound in the greenback and the rise in bond yields, that was all triggered by the wage inflation in the February 2nd release of that January jobs report that was 2.9% year over year. And so I think you're going to see folks looking for this to be, you know, kind of a modest CPI report. And, and that would, you know, potentially send oil prices, metals prices, equities back up, bond yields and the dollar back down. But uh, against that backdrop, if you get a surprise of more inflation, uh, then, you know, that that party's over and, and you'll see these things take another hit. So I think that's the biggest economic data point to watch. And that's going to impact what happens to prices probably for a couple of weeks, because you've got um, now then the eyes will be on the next Fed meeting where we expect a rate hike. And we have been for a number of months. Jason, uh, just quickly, does that mean that uh, it would be a good investment uh Refining companies, oil refineries, like Marathon Petroleum. Well, you know, we don't comment on specific company names. You know, it'll depend on something called the crack spreads. The crack spread is the profit margin between product and crude prices. Um, you know, if you were to see uh, the demand for those products be high and crude prices be low, then that should make the, the profit margins for refineries uh, quite high, especially if we see that, that, that demand, that driving season, be as strong as we expect. So refineries are likely as an industry to do well uh, going into the driving season. Jason Shanker, thank you so much for joining us. Jason Shanker, president and founder of Prestige Economics. He also is a Bloomberg profit writing columns uh, on everything from commodities to equities. Thank you so much for being with us. For ETFs, it has been largely a one-way road over the past few years with investors pouring money into these funds. Last week, there was a change with exchange-traded funds seeing $31 billion in withdrawals. Here to talk about the industry, Karen Shinoni. She is a fixed-income strategist for BlackRock based in San Francisco. Uh, and Karen, before we get into a study that BlackRock conducted about ETF investing, I want to get your take on last week because we did see some very big withdrawals across the board from some uh, corporate debt fixed income ETFs, but really from the big, broad U.S. equity uh, ETFs. Is this a signal of something broader? And uh, are, are you concerned about it? No, we're not concerned. What, what we tend to see whenever we have these market sell-offs is ETFs really step in and help the capital markets because they provide pricing transparency, and they allow a lot of investors to be able to get in and out of asset classes very easily. Having said that, maybe you could just step back and tell us about this survey for a moment and what you learned that may be surprising to some investors. Absolutely. So BlackRock conducted an ETF pulse survey, 
And this uh, talks to both investors who are users of ETFs and non-users of ETFs to really help, them, help us understand what's driving their behavior and how they think about ETFs. So there were some pretty interesting trends that came out of this year's survey. So about one in three investors right now is using ETFs, and they're using them in a variety of different asset classes. Not only that, we've noticed that the holding period for ETFs has really increased. So in 2016, it was only about five years was the average holding period. That's increased to 5.7 years. And we're seeing that over 24% of investors plan on keeping their ETF holdings over 11 years. So we're really seeing that these are low-cost investments that are really driving the core of investors' portfolios. Um, but one of the other interesting things that we noticed was the boomers, the baby boomers, actually had some of the lowest usage of ETFs, even below the silvers, Gen X, and millennials in terms of, of their portfolio adoption. Karen, what's the breakdown with respect to institutional use uh, versus retail use? So, Lisa, I would say it depends on the fund. What we've noticed is with some of the larger, most liquid funds, we are seeing more institutional adoption. It can be as high as 60 to 70 percent. Um, but we're noticing with some of the smaller, newer funds or more niche exposures, it still is primarily do- dominated by retail. But in general, we're seeing more pension plans, insurance companies, either other, other asset managers using ETFs as a way to get exposure to different asset classes. Do they give any reason for why they are opting for exchange-traded funds? Yes, I think some of the biggest reasons that we're seeing is that people are starting to use them more as a long-term holding. And we're also seeing that some people are migrating away from using actively managed mutual funds. And I think the flows um, help demonstrate that narrative as well, just as we've seen a lot of money coming out of especially active stock funds in favor of more index products. So uh, with respect to pensions uh, and, say, perhaps even insurance companies, which funds do they tend to gravitate toward? And, and what, what are ETFs replacing? Is it managed accounts, exactly what you're saying? Uh, some of it is individual bonds. So they might be, especially on the fixed income side, we might see pension plans and insurance companies. They've, they've been very big buyers of individual securities. They're also looking for creative ways to build liquidity into their portfolios so they can be more nimble as well. So, so we're seeing... Go ahead. So another, just to make sure that I understand this, in other words, uh, they might own specific bonds, which is not ETFs, uh, and they would go after and uh, look at specific securities that they analyze, uh, but they would then have basically ETF exposure that they could sell if they wanted to change their positioning on a broad level. That's right. Our, our flagship investment-grade corporate bond fund, LQD, is being held by quite a bit of insurance companies and, and pension plans because they know that they can get that exposure to corporate bonds that they're looking for in a much more diversified, liquid way. And they can pair that with maybe other securities that are higher in book yield that they wanted to buy. Um, and then they can do the look-through inside the ETF to see how much exposure they have to individual issuers. When you mentioned the uh, sort of relative uh, popularity of exchange-traded funds between millennials and and other uh, age cohorts, could it be possible that, you know, millennials, they maybe invest through their 401k plans and many 401ks don't include ETFs as an option? You're right. A lot of 401ks, a lot of retirement plans don't currently have very much ETF usage. But we found that the millennials indicated that about 42% of them do own ETFs. 
and the current allocation is about 18%. So we're, we're seeing that, especially with robo-advisors, um, it's a very popular way for millennials to invest because they can literally use an app on their phone to do it. So we're finding that that's one of the ways that a lot of millennials get started with investing, and those robo-advisors are using a lot of ETFs. Just real quick, Karen, I'm wondering, from your perspective, how much can people read into flows as being significant with respect to a broad market? I'm, I'm thinking about LQD, which you were talking about just then uh, with insurance companies and, and pensions. It saw about $2 billion of out, uh, outflows over the past week. Is that significant? I think it's just an indication that a lot of investors are either a thinking that credit spreads are very tight and maybe they want to lighten up some of their corporate credit. Maybe they might want to go to either riskier securities like we've seen a lot of inflows into emerging market debt the last few weeks. We've seen some people using the price dislocation in the equity markets as a, as a buying opportunity to go back into equities. So I think you can look at the ETF flows and understand that they're indicative of, of broader sentiment on an asset class. Thanks very much for being with us. Karen Shinoni is fixed income strategist for BlackRock, joining us from San Francisco, giving us uh, details about the results of their latest BlackRock ETF Pulse survey. Luxury travel in Asia. What makes it luxurious? Let's find out more from Deepak Ori. He is the chief executive of Libua Hotels and Resorts. They are based in Bangkok. And Deepak joins us here in our 1130 studios. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. All right. Now, you're going to have to do all the pronunciations here because this is a, a new world for many of us. And maybe you could just describe your background and how you came to be employee number one. Uh, I came to Bangkok for honeymoon and we went to Bangkok and my wife said, you know what, I love this city and I'm not going back. And I said, okay, then we stay there. And then this was a building after the financial crisis, seven years lying vacant and no interior designer wanted to design that. We came to US, we went to Hong Kong, London, uh, and we ended up hiring an office designer to design our first restaurant. And actually the the reason we are quite known in luxury today is ours is an inverted model, meaning most of the hotel companies in the world start with the hotels and then go to the restaurants. We started with the restaurant, built it a luxury, and then came with the hotel. I want to talk to you about where tourists come from that okay. visit your, your hotels. Because, you know, there was this story on the Bloomberg uh, yesterday that I thought was really interesting, talking about how China is emerging as one of the biggest provider of tourists uh, around the world, frankly. Okay, I'm not flattering uh, Bloomberg listeners, but uh, still in the world, the number one luxury spending comes from United States of America. Okay, so when I say uh, number one luxury spending, China is a blip, meaning they have to put a tick mark. So they, the population is huge. They got a lot of money. They will go shop. They have ticked that box. Then they will continue. But in U.S., when it comes to luxury, it's become a, not a luxury, but it's become a style. And in Asia, if we have to pick up any country, it's Japan. Because after World War II, uh, Japan became very financially independent and they started spending on luxury like that. So China is more of a mass tourism than luxury. Is there a difference in how you cater to different clients depending on where they're from? I mean, do they sort of demand different things? So we cannot cater to different clients. If I will be telling that we cater to different clients with the different needs, I'll be telling a lie. So we have a model that this is what we are looking at in our clients. And we put filters. 
our filters are our menu, our pricing, the dress codes, the design of the restaurants. And that's how people come to us. Uh, you know, when I asked you about your background, uh, there's more than just a honeymoon in, in Bangkok because uh, you have experience working for the Kempinski, uh, yes. the German Kempinski brand, yes. as well as Taj, uh, yes, Taj in, in India, International. Yes. Uh, was that what allowed you to gain the credibility to raise the money in order to build out the hotel business? The, uh, I, the, I met the, the promoters in Thailand, so they were Thai promoters. Yes, the credibility came neither from Kepensky nor from Taj, but came from Carlson. Uh, I, I, I did work for Regent Brand for some period of time that was bought by Carlson at that point of time. So that's where the credibility came. But actually, the credibility came to us Anybody could have done that project at that point of time because nobody wanted to touch it. We ended up hiring an office designer to design a restaurant, and today it is the hottest restaurant. You know, there's a saying, you can visit Rome and not visit Vatican, but when you visit Bangkok, you have to visit Lavua, otherwise it's a sin. So anybody could have done that. And this is the dome. And this is the dome. And this became sort of an icon, right, in the city. It became an icon. See, when we opened Dome in year 2003, Sirocco, there was no rooftop restaurant in New York. Today, you tell me, sitting here, how many rooftop places are there? So we started a trend. We started a trend, just to give an example, we have a champagne bar, which is 18 square meter, only 18 square meter. One particular champagne is sold more than whole Singapore, including duty-free. Singapore, I'm talking about city. So, so you can imagine what kind of clientele, what, and it's a corporate B city, a developing city. So uh, the luxury market grew by about 5% last yes. year. I'm wondering, what's the sort of price point for, say, a night in a hotel or for an entree uh, that is sort of enough uh, that you can survive and thrive, that won't... Uh, okay, so uh, uh, say entree depends on what kind of restaurant. So if uh, if we go to our two Michelin star restaurant, which is Mezzaluna, it's a set course, so that sets you... $300 per person, including some beverages, not all, means some. And the room, I think the cheapest room rate in the world comes from Bangkok. Uh, it's because of supply and demand. And though the supply is huge, 35 million tourists ended up in year 2017. It is the second year that is the largest tourist inbound tourism in any city in the world. 35 million. So is is it is sort of because is it's cheaper though because there are more no it's because it, of the experience yeah so see when we talk about luxury price is non-relative it's the experience you know when a customer start looking at the right side of the menu he is not looking at the luxury he's just looking at the price so it can be cheap it can be expensive doesn't matter it's an experience. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lisa. Thank Deepak you. Ori, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Leboa Hotels and Resorts based in Bangkok, Thailand. And the luxury uh, travel market is certainly uh, huge and growing rapidly and uh, definitely a trend to watch as it does contribute so much to the economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.